welcome to Mostly Books Meets. I'm Sarah. I'm Imogen. And I'm Lindsay. And together we are the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life. And we hope you'll join us for the journey. Hi, it's Sarah. This week I'm talking to Sunday Times best-selling author Beth Murray. Beth's debut novel, Saving Missy, was published in February 2020. We were lucky enough to have her join us for an event before lockdown, and Beth's stories and relaxed style made her a firm favourite with our guests. In January of the same year, Beth released the first episode of her podcast, One Torn Every Minute, where she interviews women who've given birth, talking about their experiences in hilarious and gory detail. The book Saving Missy was published in paperback on the 4th of March, giving a whole host of new readers the opportunity to meet Missy. Beth, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you very much. It's very exciting to have you on. Like we were saying just before we started recording that, first of all, I can't believe it's been a year. Yes. <laughs> and what's a year? And what a year. <laughs> um, it wasn't quite the last, but it was almost the last author event we did in person before lockdown. And it was Yeah, me too. A lifetime ago. Yeah, it's been quite a roller coaster since then, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. Well, but we're here and we're doing it and this is good. So let's carry on talking books. So I'd like to start off by going back to your childhood, as I do with all of my guests. So can we I'd just like to know, where did you grow up and what was life like for you? I grew up in the Peak District in Derbyshire and I was an only child, which I always think predisposes you to like books because you don't have quite as much company, maybe. But I must admit, I was a bit of a late starter as a reader. It took me a while to get going, I would say. And I didn't really get into reading until I was about eight or nine. What do you think got you into it in the end? We were on a holiday and I think we were in Wales. I just remember the weather was really awful. We couldn't go out much and I'd been reading these kind of comics, uh, illustrated stories, and I couldn't get enough of them. And my mum and dad said, well, if you like that, then you'll love The Famous Five. And that's what they gave me. They gave me the first The Famous Five and I think in that holiday, which was only about a week... I think I pretty much read all the famous five. <laughs> well, that's a sign, isn't it, that you've found the author, found the series for you. Yes. <laughs> Do you know, I had exactly the same experience on a caravan holiday. We were actually in France and a very similar thing where I just basically devoured an entire series. It's funny what you do as a child, isn't it, to keep yourself entertained? Yeah, and I think there's a kind of unlocking in children and some get it earlier than others. And it's not about being able to read, but suddenly something opens up and you really want to read. I'm waiting for that with my own son. I think he might be nearly there. Brilliant. It must be nice to watch that process developing. Yes. What was it that you particularly liked about The Famous Five? I liked how much stuff happened how it sort of romped along and I loved the whole secret passages I was just obsessed with secret passages as a child me too yeah just looking for them everywhere if I was ever in an old house I'd be down in the cellar trying to prize up flagstones to this day if I see a panelled wall I'm so sure that if I knock on the right panel the door will open yeah she taps into something there that's very important I think our urge to find secret passages so you got into Famous Five and then did that just open a whole 
door to different books for you? Was that it? Were you then officially a reader? Yes, that's my memory. Because my dad used to read to me. And the thing that I remember him reading was Watership Down. And I remember loving that. I loved being read to, but I hadn't quite got to reading myself. And then after Famous Five, I was just insatiable. I think I read more as a child than I've ever read since. I think that level of reading, I've never managed again, just sort of devouring things. What else did I read? Uh, The Anastasia Krupnik books, I loved them. The Chalet School, was obsessed with Chalet School. Obviously, Mallory Towers. Obviously. I read The Secret Seven, but it's not as good as The Famous Five. I don't know why. You know, I was just really ravenous for books from then on. Fantastic. Yeah, I think there was a Famous Five or Secret Seven split. It's a bit like the Blur Oasis dilemma. Yeah. (laughs) Anyone who's in favour of Secret Seven is wrong. It's not as good. I agree. (laughs) My sister was in that group and I disagreed. (laughs) So you uh, grew up, you went to university. While studying, you had some work published in the Cambridge and Oxford May anthologies. How did that come about? I think they were just inviting submissions. And at the time, because I was a pretentious student, I used to write a lot of angst-ridden poetry. And actually, I submitted a poem that I'd written as a teenager at school, and it was about my grandmother. And I reworked it for that submission and then completely forgot about it. And then it turned out to be one of the ones selected, which was very exciting because that was the first time I saw my name in print. And it was rather lovely. I'm sure it was. Was there ambition at that point to write to to be able to kind of create a book or a collection or was it just something that you happened to have done that you enjoyed at the time and then you kind of put it down to experience and moved on? Well I would say that when I was little when I was a child I wanted to be a writer and it got slightly refined when I was at university because I was in Footlights and I used to write a lot of comedy sketches and like many people in Footlights we all wanted to go into comedy and become dazzling script writers so at that time that was kind of what I thought I wanted to do. So although I wanted to write a book, it was more focused on working in comedy in television. And various friends did go on to do that. But I mean, telly is really hard to get into. And so I did get into television, but into a different branch of it. So the kind of writing for television and comedy fell by the wayside in the end. I always thought the sound of the footlights, it just sounds fascinating. It must have been so much fun to be part of. It was really good fun. Yeah, it was brilliant. A friend and I auditioned and we got drunk on vodka and orange beforehand because we were so nervous. And the person we auditioned for was John Oliver, presenter John Oliver. What's his show called? (laughs) He's really famous now. I know who you mean. So we auditioned for him, drunk on vodka and orange. And at the end of it, we did a sketch about the Virgin Mary. And at the end of it, he said, the list's going up tonight, but you'll be on it. Oh, wow. And it remains one of the most triumphant moments of my life. It was really good fun. I loved all the stuff that we did in that. I bet. And so you obviously met a bunch of really creative people. And yeah. And after graduating, you moved to London. And as you say, you started working television, but you were working more behind the scenes. And you ended up working as the creative director at RDF Television. Creating some brilliant shows. Um, the Secret Life of Four-Year-Olds is a show that, as somebody who doesn't have any children, I'm slightly obsessed with that show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you don't have to be a parent to enjoy that show, I don't think. Where did that idea come from and, and how were you involved? I'd love to claim that it was my idea. It wasn't at all. We were developing a thing, I think at one stage it was called Experiments on Children. And basically that was a sort of channel for slightly fiery, controversial title. And 
I'm trying to think. It might have been something to do with the Robert Winston marshmallow tests and we were going to kind of observe them doing a series of tests. Mm-hmm. And Channel 4 gave us some money to do a kind of pilot experiment. And it became apparent that when you film kids of that age, very, very specific age, they're old enough to be articulate, but they're not old enough to be self-aware and self-conscious. And what we quickly realised was when you got the cameras on them, they're absolute gold. And some of the tape actually made it into the first episode. I think Jessica on the phone sort of saying, I don't love you anymore and you're not the dad, things like that. So it was a sort of real light bulb moment where we were like, this is amazing. And my contribution to it was sort of helping with development and writing various treatments. That was basically how I honed my craft, was writing endless treatments for TV channels. So how long were you doing that type of work for? 20 years. I mean, it was a long time. In various places, I've worked for the BBC and various independent production companies. And then I ended up at RDF. So I've done it a long old time and I really loved it. I love television. I'm very passionate about television. And I love the people who work in television as well. So I had a great time. But by the end of it, I felt like I'd done pretty much everything I wanted to do. And I didn't really have massive ambitions to go any further. So, well, let's just say the book deal came along at the right time. (laughs) It's funny how things work out, isn't it? Yeah. So you live in London now with your husband and your two sons. Mm -hmm. And my dog. And your dog, very important. And it was whilst on maternity leave with one of your sons that your inspiration hit whilst you were pushing a pram around the local park. Tell us what happened there. Well, it was slightly before. It was when I was pregnant and we were planning my maternity leave. My husband said, if we save up, then we could put the baby in nursery for two days a week and then you could have time to write your book. And I thought that was worth having a baby for, that I could maybe finally get that time. (laughs) And so it was when he was nine months old, we put him in nursery two days a week. So for that first nine months of maternity leave... I was planning what I would write because I thought, you know, I can't just go into this. If we're paying the money and I'm not with my son, then I better make that time count. So I just spent a lot of time. And it was very kind of calm time for me. My first maternity leave was a bit more unsettled and I was very shocked by the transition to motherhood. Whereas the second time around, I just knew what I was doing a bit more and felt a bit calmer. So I had a lot of time Mm -hmm. to plan and I just sort of thought about it for nine months. And then we put him in nursery two days a week and I went to a cafe two days a week and wrote my book. And I mean, it sounds weird now, but I don't remember it being anything other than fun and easy. Wow. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it wasn't at all. Maybe I'm misremembering, but that's how it felt. Well, compared to looking after a baby, it was fun and easy. <laughs> and I, was, I just went in every day and I emptied my brain out. So three months two days a week, I had 80,000 words at the end of it. Wow. It just emptied. And then I went back to work and I didn't write another thing for three months. Oh my goodness. It was probably quite good having that fixed period of time and knowing that you only had those two days a week where you could really put pen to paper because you had so much other stuff going on. It probably did help focus the mind quite a lot. Yeah. And I'd been waiting for this opportunity for so long and I never felt like I had any time to write. I mean, I used to get up in the morning sometimes before work, before children. I used to get up and I would write a bit. But that prolonged period of sitting, staring into space, thinking, and then having plenty of time to write, I'd never had that before. And it was such a treat. And I think that's why it seemed easy. And I've had a lot of time to think about it as well. And the story of Missy itself... For anyone who hasn't read it, let's do the elevator pitch. (laughs) It's about a spiky, diffident, very proud elderly old lady who 
feels completely alone. No friends, family, estranged or lost. And one day in the park, she meets two women who kind of offer her a second chance at life. But at the same time, she's got skeletons in her closet, some secrets in her past that are holding her back. So it's about whether she can put them behind her and embrace the second chance at life. It really is a brilliant book. And not just saying that because I'm chatting to you here. Thank you. But <laughs> I really, really enjoyed it. I read it just before the event we did together last year. And uh, just remember reading it incredibly quickly and feeling really empathetic. I really liked Missy as a character, even though she was a bit prickly and there were you know, certain parts to her that maybe weren't quite so appealing. I just thought it was fantastic. So when you came up with the idea, when you knew you were going to sit down and write the book, when did the light bulb moment come that that was the story you were going to be working with? Was it before you'd sat down or was it that you'd kind of got some structure in place before and then it happened? It was a mix. I had the character of Missy pretty much worked out. Mm -hmm. I had the opening chapter and the party scene from 1956 in my head. <laughs> I had a very broad narrative arc, which was she's lonely, she's going to get a load of friends, but that circle of friends is going to be threatened. And then I knew two things that happened at the end, but I didn't know how I was going to get there. And so I started, in fact, on the first day, I just had the idea, I'm going to write the park scene, I'm going to write the 1956 scene, and then I'll see what happens. And I had a very violent dream, which became the flashback scene with her grandfather. And so then I had three scenes and it was just kind of adding bits and pieces. And as I kind of stumbled through it, looking ahead and thinking things are going to start coming together. I know that I'm going to work out how those two things happen at the end and everything in between. And it just then very gradually fell into place. And I don't like planning too much because it can make you a bit stilted and not able to breathe and make your narrative feel organic so that's how I prefer to work yeah I agree but having those kind of key points must have helped quite a lot so you went back to work and you didn't write for three months so then what happened at that point how did it go from being a document on your laptop I presume to being a published book well at that point with 80,000 words I knew exactly how I wanted it to end and I had about 15,000 words to write. So I booked a weekend in my old college and I went for the weekend and I finished it there. And then I had my 95,000 words and I was done and I'd written a book. And, you know, I had no idea whether it was any good, but it was demonstrably a book that told a story and had a beginning, a middle and end. And that in itself felt like a massive achievement. And then I started editing it and that was a very long process. <laughs> And then was it usual you got an agent and you you went to publishers or was it was there any unusual? No, I edited it for a long time very slowly because I was still balancing work and kids. So I edited very slowly and started to approach agents probably a bit too soon. I probably was a bit too keen because I didn't know what I was doing. And I read a few books about, you know, how to approach agents and I looked up things and I did a round of queries and got absolutely nowhere. So I went back and I re-edited the book and then I re-edited my submission and I did another round and I got a bit further, got a bit more interest. And then I did a third round again with an edit in between, always kind of refining the submission. And although I got quite a lot more interest then, I did, nothing came of it. And I'd also submitted it to a few prizes and got nowhere. And I was like, okay, I've done it. It wasn't to be, but I've had a great time and I loved it. How wonderful. I didn't actually feel sad at all. Mm -hmm. Well, a bit disappointed, but not that bad. And I thought, I'm going to put this to bed now. That was that. Maybe I'll write another book, but that was that. 
But because the whole thing about rejection in writing, you're supposed to just take it on the chin. So I said to myself, just to prove I'm a proper writer and that I don't let myself get cast down, I'm going to send it to one more agent. Not to get that agent, but just literally to fire it off and forget about it and move on. And that agent is the agent that took me on and got me the book deal. So it was the final roll of the die. <laughs> Imagine if you'd not done that. I know, I feel a bit shaky about that when I think about it. Because, I mean, it's so much based on luck. I don't kid myself. It could have been half a dozen other agents it might not have gelled with. And it is very odd that it worked in that way. And it was published and it's done very well. Obviously, it was published just before lockdown. So you got in before chaos hit. I was very lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I felt for a lot of the authors that got their books published, especially those that came out just as lockdown was kicking off, because nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody knew how to respond to it. And I think it was a really tricky time. Yes, it was horrendous. And I feel so awful for some of the people I know who had debuts out just a few weeks after mine and their launches were cancelled, you know, their parties and not getting to go and see their books in a bookshop. It was just awful for so many people. Yeah, because it's a very long process, isn't it? And to have that build up suddenly taken away from you. So we are living through strange times at the moment. We're recording this at the beginning of February and we're in the middle of our third national lockdown. My shop shut. Mm. But we're still talking books, which is good. How has coronavirus impacted you and your family? Well, in a professional sense, a lot of my events got cancelled. But as I say, I just don't feel in a position to complain about it because I got some events and I had a wonderful launch party and a few weeks of normal sales. So I also am lucky enough that most of the time you just sit indoors writing anyway. So my kind of day to day life didn't change too much. Obviously, when the kids are off school, that is that is the major thing for me, because not only does it send me do lally, <laughs> um, it's really hard to relentlessly manage two energetic boys. But the impact on my work, because as I was saying, one of the things you need for writing is prolonged amounts of time to stare into space and get your thoughts in order and prolonged amounts of time to write rubbish that you can then discard. And that becomes so much more focused. In a sense, sometimes I've been very productive because it's made me sit down and not doom scroll Twitter all the time and really focus on what I'm doing. But equally, I've mostly been editing during lockdown and to try and write something new from scratch, I think would be a real challenge because your focus and your concentration is so shot to pieces. So that has been the real impact that the homeschooling and just endless snack making and tidying and washing has been really distracting. (laughs) I'm in total awe of anybody that has had children and had to homeschool them. I've been kind of living through it. My sister has a couple of young sons and hearing her experiences, I just, I bow down in awe to everyone, every single one of you. <laughs> so what's been really interesting is that I'm speaking to lots of people for this podcast and I'm finding a real mix. Some people are saying that because of the change in lifestyle, we're not going out as much, therefore they are finding a lot more time to read. Others are saying they just can't get their brain in the game and therefore they're not really as much as they would do normally. For you as a reader, which camp do you fall into? Both, I think. And it depends on how I'm feeling. Like, for example, at the moment, I'm not reading at all because I'm editing. And I daren't read when I edit because I'm worried that I will start to try and copy whatever I'm reading. I just find it too much of a distraction. So I tend to go for kind of frenzy reads in between. 
And then I'm mostly okay if I'm really concentrating on being in the reading zone. But what I can't do, I find it incredibly difficult, is sort of just pick up a book for 10 minutes because I don't have that ability to lose myself that quickly. (laughs) So that is why I do the sort of Twitter doom scrolling and I'll look up how many people have been vaccinated and then I'll get sucked down a rabbit hole of reading about variations in the mutations of the virus. And so that's what I've lost the ability to do is to just pick up a book for 10 minutes. Also because I'm going to get interrupted by a child. So if I kind of dedicate myself when I'm in a bit of a downtime, then I've had some wonderful reading sessions, but it's hard. I have to make myself and then it's fine. Yeah. Remove yourself from other situations and actually go and physically. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly the same. Yeah. What was the last book you read? The last book I read before I dived into this edit was Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Amazing book. Wonderful. And I read it in a kind of, well, let's see what all the fuss is about then. (laughs) Because I'm so jealous. I mean, wow, what a result. But, oh God, she deserves all of it and more. I was just completely poleaxed by the entire thing. So clever. So unbelievably clever. Yeah, it covers so many different aspects, that book. You're not the first person to have said that they've read that one recently, which I don't think is a big surprise. But I think the fact that people know that it was inspired by true events, but then it's the successful weaving of complete fictional characters in and then her beautiful writing style. There's so much about it, isn't there? There's... So many aspects. And I felt like, I mean, I've got a decent understanding of Shakespeare, but I felt like the more you knew about Shakespeare, the cleverer you would find it. That was getting sort of glimmers of her telling me how Shakespeare wrote stuff and why he wrote it that way. And I felt like if I knew more about Shakespeare, I would be even more gobsmacked by how clever it all was. But I love that it's about Agnes and what a character she is. And just the grief and loss of it is just staggering. I just found it wonderful. Yeah, that's also coming out on paperback, I believe, on the same day that yours is coming out. Well, bring it on, Maggie. (laughs) (laughs) When you are managing to read, do you manage to read more than one book at once? Or are you somebody that has to start and finish book before you move on to it start and finish I do have some I have a sort of pile on my bedside table that is kind of a dip in thing like dog poems it's one of them I've got the dog poems that sits on top but generally I prefer to just really focus and once I'm in a book I'm dead to the world and I will read it really quickly and really intensively and then that's it but in between I wouldn't flick between books that would be weird it's so funny it really divides opinion it's like whether or not you fold the pages of the book down to as bookmarks some people think that it's a sin that's completely unforgivable yeah I think I do do that yeah yeah I do that yeah I do I think that's okay. It, it says that your books have been loved that's what I think yeah but some of my colleagues do not agree with me they get very angry with me. no I know some people like to keep it pristine don't they if it's well if it was a hardback I would because I'd use the jacket as the bookmark but in a paperback I would probably fold the pages no never any of them (laughs) (laughs) I'll just throw my books around (laughs) so I'm always interested in hearing from a book lover I always feel like everybody's got that book that has had some kind of impact on them in some way it's had like a life-changing impact and that could be professionally it could be personally do you have a book like that and if so what is it I find this a very difficult question to answer because in some ways every single book I've read can be said to do that to a certain extent. 
so there are so many markers throughout my life that I could look back on and say that was the one that made me do this or that was the one that made me do that. But I kind of just kept going backwards. And the one that kind of springs to mind is Eva Ibbotson's Witch Witch. And the reason I think that is because that really blew me away when I was little. And I think the reason it blew me away so much was I found it so funny. I just found it so funny and clever. And I loved the characters. I knew who everyone was. It was sort of pinpoint sharp in my mind that I could picture the whole thing. And it's very warm and real to me, despite the fact that it's a sort of supernatural subject. And afterwards, I wrote to her and she wrote back to me, which was so wonderful. I mean, like at the time, like now, I'm like, Eva Ibbotson wrote to me. Uh, And at the time, I didn't really understand, but I was very pleased with the letter. Oh. And I don't know where, I think the letter's probably in my mum and dad's loft, like everything else, but I don't remember too much about what the letter said, but it said something along the lines of, I'm delighted you enjoyed my book and honoured that you think it's the best you've ever read. And it was such a lovely letter. And I remember thinking, I want to do that. I want to write books like that, that are funny. Oh, wow. And how old were you? Hmm. I would guess about 10 or 11, something like that. It's hard to remember, really. The seed was sown really young. Yes, I do think it was. And I think that even if I wasn't quite conscious of it, I do remember feeling that there was something there that I wanted to recreate. That magic as well of authors meeting kids or interacting with kids, we see this time and time again. One of the things I'm missing a great deal is going into schools with children's authors. We did it a lot. Yeah. Particularly in schools where they might not have had many authors go in or just haven't ever had that experience before to see a child go up and speak to an author yeah it just kind of blows their mind that that person's the person that created the book and I just don't think there's anything more inspiring for a young person than to meet somebody who seems quite normal that has managed to do it yeah it's really nice to see in my son because although he hasn't quite got the knack of losing himself in a book yet he does really enjoy writing and he creates books and at my launch party he sold some of his creations he made (laughs) he made display of his books I think he made about five pounds he probably sold more than I did but that kind of urge to recreate what you see in others that others have done is kind of very strong I think particularly in children and I think that's what Eva Ibbotson did for me that that this interaction that we had, not just the book, but the letter as well, That's was really a powerful moment. Really amazing. So let's come back to the present day. Um, I mentioned in the introduction that you created a podcast in 2020, which ran throughout the whole, well, I think to the end of October was your last episode is out at the moment. Yeah. One torn every minute. Tell us about that. Well, I was getting kind of a bit worked up about publication and I needed a distraction. My husband records and produces podcasts. And I'd had this idea while I was in telly about talking to people about giving birth. And my husband said, well, why don't you just do it as a podcast? And because I was in need of distraction, I was like, all right, then, well, let's give it a go. And um, we just sort of hunted down a few comedians and presenters and actresses we knew who were up for it. And then I got the bug after that because I discovered that talking to women about the childbirth process is utterly gripping and very funny because I wanted to go in hard on the humour because I think through laughter, that's how you reclaim that experience. And also because, you know, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor. And so I wanted to bring out the thing that I felt I could bring out the best, which was the comedy of it. So I just loved talking to these women. 
And even though, you know, we're all going through the same process, it's different every time. And every time is fascinating. So I just really, really enjoyed it. And so then decided to do another series when I had a bit of downtime. But it's quite hard to find to book people because obviously you've only got half the population. And of that half the population, not everyone's given birth and not everyone wants to talk about it. So it's a very boutique podcast. So when's the next series coming out? Well, I mean, if there is another series, it will be because somebody pops up who is interesting and and engaged and wants to do it. And then I'll build a series around them probably and exploit my husband's contacts as I usually do. (laughs) So possibility, but watch this space. Yeah, I might do it. You talked about the fact that you're editing at the moment. Yes. So what are you working on at the moment? And uh, what's your plan for 2021? Well, I am writing book two, which is that difficult second book because it's written under such different circumstances is no longer a hobby. I have publishers and editors and deadlines (laughs) Um, and it's such a different experience. Very, very steep learning curve. And it has been enjoyable, but at the same time, it's been work, particularly under the circumstances. So I am coming to the end of another draft of that. And I think that that is it's about a well I'll, I'll give you a sort of insight it's about a single mother um who lives in north london whose life hasn't turned out the way she planned she has many many talents but none of them have really been used because her life was derailed and it's about her getting her life back on track and then kind of working out what to do with her life and it's not a sequel to saving missy but the worlds very lightly collide so you can catch a glimpse of Missy's world. Oh, brilliant. And that is due to be published, I think, next year, in the spring, maybe. Not sure, because things, you know, particularly now, things get moved around so much. So I will be working on that. Excellent. Well, I, for one, can't wait. So I think Saving Missy is absolutely brilliant. I'm really looking forward to it coming out in paperback. It's going to be another whole host of people to be able to read the book. And we will certainly be including it as part of our book club one of the months thank you thank you um beth it's been absolutely lovely chatting to you today thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it and i can't believe it's been a year since we last (laughs) met and i hope that we get to meet again at some point in the future for another in-person event thanks again thank you very much all of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the most books website This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.